Before we get started looking at God's word this evening, let's pray one more time. Father, we come before you this evening now, and we've come to the point where we are asking you to speak to us, Lord, from your word as you promise. Father, we are so thankful that you're speaking through your word is not based on how smart we are, how hard we work at it, while all those things are good. But you speaking through your word is based purely upon you, that you are a communicating God. When we open your word and we read in faith, you speak to us. You shape us. You comfort us. You convict us. You admonish. You exhort you do a myriad of things, Lord, but it's you who does it. May we never miss that. And so we ask now, Lord, that in a special way this evening, you would communicate to us, Lord, that you would take the truths that are located in this psalm, in these verses, that you would allow us to understand them truly, but then we ask that you would do the secret work of applying it to our hearts where we each need. Father, strengthen me now as I seek to preach your word. Strengthen me, Holy Spirit, that I would be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. This evening, we're continuing our series in Psalm 51, and we're looking at verses 10, 11, and 12. Um, last week we were looking at how David was asking for the pardon of sin. And this week we're looking at David's ask for purity. So as we look at that, I want to start by having us realize something. Do you realize if God forgave us, but never supplied the holiness needed, we wouldn't get very far. If he simply put us back at a neutral place, we would go into debt once again, the debt of sin. Forgiveness without holiness is not very profitable for us. A pastor once asked some children that were before him, what is holiness? And there was this poor little boy in really tattered clothing, and he jumped up on the pastor's lap, and he said, it's to be clean on the inside. And I can't think of a simpler yet better definition. True holiness, true purity is to be made clean on the inside. And so what we're going to see in verses 10 through 12 is that we, should, we, we must not only ask for pardon of sin, but we must also ask for purity of heart. So let me read verses 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. When it comes to David in these verses, I think what we see right off the bat is that the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. Heart of the issue is the issue of the heart, and it always works that way. All of our problems in this life with sin go back to the heart. 
to think that our problems with sin and godlessness begins anywhere else is foolish. It's out of the heart that it all flows from. So we saw David appeal to God's character at the beginning of Psalm 51. We saw that he acknowledged his sin, that he asked to be pardoned. Now he's asking for purity. And so he starts verse 10, created me a clean heart, O God. That verb, the word create there, that's the same word used in Genesis 1. The same exact word, bara in Hebrew. And it's used of God when he created the cosmos, when he created land, when he created mountains and birds and crickets, and ultimately man in his own image. It means to bring something into existence. Create in me a clean heart, O God. It's interesting, David doesn't say, fix my heart, modify my heart encourage my heart. He says, create in me a clean heart. That word clean, what's that mean? David's saying, I need you to create in me a heart that is completely free from sin and from impurity. I need a heart that's unmixed. It doesn't have a mixture of things in it. It's pure. It's a heart of singular devotion. That's what I need. See, David's heart was not 100% focused on sin. David had holy aspirations as a man of God, but it it was a mixed bag. It wasn't unmixed. It wasn't pure. And David is being awakened more and more to this reality. And so he says, create in me a clean heart, a heart that is not mixed, that is pure. It's a heart that he's asking for. David didn't say, I have some bad habits. I need to break some habits. Create in me new habits, Lord. He didn't say that. Create in me a new Outlook on life. Let me, let me, a new educational system, rewire my worldview. No, he says a heart. Because the heart, especially in Hebrew, it's that part of you deep within that's the control center. It's where your will and your affections and what you desire come from. It's what informs the rest of you on what to do and why to do it. David's saying, I need a complete tear down and rebuild within me. Thus far, he's been confessing and repenting of all that stuff, tearing it all down to nothing. But effectively, what David's saying is like, I need you to remake me. I need a clean heart. It's interesting to me that again, David's asking for God to do all of it. There's no, there's no tone of partnership here. He didn't say, help me have a new heart. He says, I need you to create, make this thing in its entirety. David recognizes, understands that what he needs is a miracle. 
as miraculous as it was that you, almighty God, brought everything into existence, I need that same kind of creative power and miracle at work in me. Give me a new heart. David recognizes that what he desires, only God can provide. It really is a cry of desperation. He has nothing to contribute to this. Because he recognizes, as we've been seeing in Psalm 51, David knows that his heart is vile. It is a factory of wickedness. That's all it's pumping out. On the, on the, conveyor, on the conveyor belt of his heart is wickedness after wickedness after wickedness. In Romans chapter 7, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the working out of the good is not. One of the most offensive truths you can tell people in this world is that even when you want to do a good thing, you don't have the power to do it. Let's say you really, truly desired to do a good thing apart from the Lord. You do not have the power to do it. Not the way it ought to be done. See, we only look at the outward action but again, we're seeing here, creating me a clean heart, oh God. The act has to flow from the heart motivations. And so the most noble, virtuous, kind-hearted individual in this world, if they do not have a clean heart given to them by God, can do no good. Because no good dwells within them. It's a factory of wickedness. And it makes sense if you think about this. We tend to say, well, that's a really good person. That's a nice person. But a person who does really good things, who's very virtuous and, and, and seeks the welfare of people and communities and, or, and does all of these things that we applaud, if they are doing all of this with no reference point to God, then it's the height of wickedness because they are taking credit for all that God has enabled them to do by his common grace. David understands, I need a clean heart. I need God to give me a new heart if it's going to be any good. If he's to have any hope in this life moving forward, it's God who must act and God alone. You realize the receiving of a clean heart of a new heart is a greater miracle than the miracle of Genesis 1? I heard it once said by a pastor. In Genesis 1, God creates something good out of nothing. In giving us a new heart, he creates something good out of something evil. That's an amazing thing. It's a miracle to receive this new and this clean heart that David is asking for. At salvation, we are given this new heart. But throughout the course of our lives, throughout the course of David's life, this heart has to be continually made clean. I think of when Jesus was cleaning the feet of Peter. 
Peter was at first, no, 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 no. And he says, well, you have no part of me. And he's like, well, clean all of me. He didn't need all of them clean. He was already born again, but he needed that renewal, that renewing cleansing daily. But this promise of a clean heart is something God had been promising. If we looked at Jeremiah chapter 24. Verse 7. I will give them a heart to know me for I am Yahweh. And they will be my people and I will be their God for they will return to me with their whole heart. I think what's beautiful there is it starts off by saying, I will give them a heart, but that verse ends that they will return to me with their heart. It's been given to them. This is what God does. This is the miracle of it all. He gives us new and clean hearts. Ezekiel chapter 36. Verses 25 through 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments. Sounds a lot like what David was crying out here. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. As I was thinking through this a little while ago today, I had to ask the question of myself, and so I put the question before you, do you know your heart? Are you well acquainted with your heart? It's an important question to ask because if we do not know the re- who are, if we don't know our hearts at a personal level, we're not going to be able to detect all that's flowing from it. In Proverbs chapter four verse twenty three, reminds us that it is out of the heart that desires and all that flows. Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. The heart is powerful. It will dictate. And David recognizes, because I see how powerful a heart is, whether toward righteousness or wickedness, I need you, God, to create in me a clean heart. Then he says, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Spirit, that part of you that lives forever apart from your body. Sometimes it's called a soul. There's debate there, soul, spirits, but... It's that part of you, that eternal part of you. And he's saying, renew it, make it steadfast. I need it to be unshakable. I need it to be determined, resolved, diligent, fully committed with allegiance. When he says renew, I find a word of hope there for us because it reminds us that we tire. We tire. David didn't buckle down and try harder. He recognized there's a tiredness. There's a weariness here. God, I need you to renew it. God is not impressed by us trying to just pump the arms a little harder and go a little faster. 
God is pleased. God is delighted when we stop and we say, I need you, Lord, to do this for me because I can't. I want to magnify and glorify you by expressing my need and allowing you to renew and give me that steadfast spirit. David knows that he's been anything but steadfast on that rooftop. Since that rooftop moment, he's been anything but steadfast in his pursuit of holiness, in his pursuit of a clean, clean heart. He hasn't been spiritually steadfast. He's been spiritually lazy. It started, we, we, you picked it up, right? We, that narrative. At the time when kings go to war, David stayed back. Spiritual laziness is a snare. We have to be praying for God by the Holy Spirit to renew a spirit of steadfast vigilance, determination in us toward holiness. In this one verse here is asking for a clean heart and a renewed spirit. David is showing us that we don't only need pardon, but that we need purity. Because if we have pardon without purity, we're right back in the same mess moments later. A clean heart, a steadfast spirit is what we need if we're going to enter into the presence of God. Do we think honestly that we can enter into the presence of God with anything but a clean heart? In, in, in Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4. Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh and who may rise in his holy place? I do not sit with worthless men and I will not go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence. So I will go around your altar, O Yahweh, in order to proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and recount of all your wondrous deeds. We need purity of heart, cleanliness of heart to be in God's presence. And here's the beautiful thing. David is living in the hope and expectation of the Messiah to come. We live in light of the cross. We live knowing who the Messiah is. And by faith in him, we are given a new heart when we repent and believe upon him. And so this cry for a clean heart, in one sense, we already have it. God has given us a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. Yeah, we muck it up and we get dirty with sin, but he is faithful. If we can, 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll make us clean. So, creating me a clean heart, O oh God, or renew a steadfast spirit within me, that should be part of the everyday prayer rhythm of the believer. He goes on to say, verse 11, and do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, some have looked at that and thought, wow, are we talking about losing your salvation? 
Are we saying that you can get the Holy Spirit and lose the Holy Spirit? A couple things. A psalm like this is written to be proclaimed to all the people. So, well, another interpretation, somebody thinks that the removing of the Holy Spirit is so David would no longer be empowered to perform his kingly duties. But because this was a corporate psalm that would have been read and prayed by all of God's people, it can't simply refer to the kingship of David. And because David is saying here, do not cast me away from your presence, he is presently in God's presence. And so he, he is still in a saved relationship with God. It appears what's going on here is that we're just getting a deeper look into David's heart. There's doctrine there to be examined. But I think a lot of pages of commentary are busy batting around intellectual arguments instead of understanding the heart issue here. See, David is radically, <laughs> David is radically grieved over his sin. David recognizes the reality that if God were simply to exercise his judgment, his hand of judgment right now, then he would be cast out of God's presence. He'd be removed from the presence of God. He wouldn't be able to live in a manner that's pleasing to God. David is so right now aware of his sin. He recognizes what he deserves. And so effectively what he's saying is, don't just give me justice. Give me a grace that'll purify me. Give me grace that will enable me to be in your presence because David knows what the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 59 two regarding the reality of our sin. Isaiah 59 two, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. So that he does not hear Isaiah 59 two. David knows sin leads to separation. And so David here is pleading with God, be gracious to me. Don't cast me away. Don't take your spirit from me because then I can't live in a manner that's pleasing to you. A question I have. I had to ask myself, and so again, I like to put questions before us. Have you ever been so broken by your sin that you were left thinking, I don't know how God can love me right now. I don't know how God isn't just going to be done with me and remove me from his presence. Have you ever been so broken by your sin in that manner? Not because of how it affected other people, not because of consequences, but simply because your eyes were open to who God is, your eyes were open to the sin within, and you were just devastated, wondering, how can he love me? How does he not just cast me away into darkness? If you have been there, you're experiencing something that David is trying to portray here. But again, we live on the other side of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so I'm not saying when those moments come to not let them sit there. You need to, we need to feel the weight of that. But we don't need to stay there. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we will be put to death all day long. We were counted as a sheep for the slaughter. But all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through whom you loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The thing that David rightly feared, the thing that we should rightly fear, doesn't need to paralyze us when we understand what God has done for us in his son. But we're not going to value that truth in Romans 8 if we aren't genuinely first broken by the weight of the sin in light of the holiness of God. See, David recognizes and we need to recognize that if we don't have the spirit, we have no spiritual life. Both quantitatively, a quantity of life, meaning eternal, but a quality of life in that it is God-honoring and pleasing. We desperately need the spirit. We've gotten to the place now, at least in many reformed church communities, where the spirit is more like, if you were to think Batman or Robin, the spirit is more like Robin there to help Batman. And we think we can do so much, but when we get in a pinch, we call in our little sidekick called the Holy Spirit, and he helps us really get it together. Right. But it's, a, it, it, it's, it's because we elevate our ability, our intellect so highly as if the devil wasn't smart. We need the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. We need the Holy Spirit because it is the Spirit of God that maintains us in the presence of God and allows us to live in a way that is pleasing to God. It is the Holy Spirit who regenerates us. We see that in John chapter 3, verses 6 through 7. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us new life. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin. John Chapter 16, verse 8. It is the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. Galatians 5, 18 and verse 25 also. It's the Holy Spirit that grants us and nurtures us in this resurrection life that we are to have. Romans 8, 11. It is the Holy Spirit that enables us to kill sin. Romans 8.13. It is the spirit that intercedes for us. Romans 8, verses 26 through 27. It's the Holy Spirit that transforms us into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18. I don't care how smart you are, you can't accomplish any of that. We 
The Holy Spirit is not, we're not Batman and the Holy Spirit is Robin at all. We're the one that's in trouble and needs rescue. And the Spirit of God accomplishes that for us. He does that for us. It's no secret that I am a believer in Reformed theology, that I believe it is the truest uh, representation of what we find in God's Word. But we need to be careful how quickly those of us who are in Reformed circles are critical of brothers and sisters in charismatic circles. Because if they go too far with the working of the spirit, we go too far with the pride of the intellect. David here recognizes, David knew God's word. He wrote all these Psalms. He led Israel. David was a very biblically astute individual. And yet here, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not cast me away from your presence. David recognizes, I need the spirit of God. Otherwise, I have nothing. Then he goes on in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Sin brings loss. Sin brings loss. Sin promises pleasure, but it just leaves you with pain. There was a whole lot of promise of pleasure on the rooftop for David and just led to a whole bunch of pain. The world tries to tell us that sin will actually bring joy. And that a clean and pure heart before God is actually a killjoy. But it's a complete lie. It's a complete lie. Sin overpromises and underdelivers always. In the gospel, according to Luke, in chapter 15, we find the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son thought that the world had everything to offer that he wanted. So he takes his inheritance and he squanders it. It says in verses 14 through 19. Now, when he had spent everything. Well, let's go back to 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate living recklessly. We could say living the American dream, trying to eat at the world's buffet table. But when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the cat country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to the citizens of that country and he sent to the fields to feed swine. And he was desiring to be fed with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread and I'm dying here with hunger. And he returns home. The prodigal tried to do it the way the world tells him to do it. He chased it. He caught it. It left him in a worse state. Sin always brings loss. David is unable by his own efforts to provide himself with the joy that he once had, the joy of his salvation. 
It's interesting. He says the joy of your salvation. It is a joy that is both from God, but it's also a, a joy that's in God. He is the basis of our salvation. He is the great fountain of joy and of delight. And notice he's not praying for the restoration of his salvation. He's not, he's not praying to be saved again. He's not praying for his salvation. He's praying for the joy that accompanies salvation to be returned to him. I think we've all been there. It's not that we've apostatized the faith. It's not that we've said that Jesus is not Lord and walked away. But through sinful choices and sinful acts, we reach a place that we know it all to be true, but we're left joyless. And in those moments, we need to ask God, it's not, sometimes it's not a question of Lord, am I saved as much as joy, Lord, return the joy of my salvation to me. But notice that that has to come first. What came first? The cry for a clean heart, the cry for a renewed spirit, the recognition of what he deserves to not be cast away from his presence recognizing that now he comes to the place, return to me the joy of your salvation. When you truly know that you're a hell-deserving sinner, but that God by his grace saved you through his son and is now sanctifying you and preparing you for eternal glory with him, how can that not produce joy? I mean, how can that truly not? When the good news of our salvation becomes dull, our devotion and our delight runs dry. I think, if I'm going to use a little historical creativity here, I would like to think that that joy of salvation meant a whole lot more to David moving forward in his life after that point. I think so often we don't really prize the joy of our salvation. Maybe we haven't really experienced the joy of salvation. We viewed it transactionally. Sin, check. Believe in Jesus, check, check, check. Awesome. I'm saved. Very mechanistic. But the joy that accompanies salvation, many have not truly ever experienced because the reality is they've never truly been broken by their sin. They just haven't. And so you can't prize your salvation, delighting your salvation, when you really don't recognize how much you did not deserve it. David recognized that in verse 11. Don't cast me away from your spirit, your presence. Don't take your spirit from me. We would think the world would think that what I'm about to say is crazy, but here's the reality. How do you grow to appreciate the joy of your salvation? To daily grow in the understanding of just how wicked you are and how undeserving you are. That's the only way, really. It sounds backwards. I'm just going to focus on God's love. Now focus on his grace. I'm not saying those things are wrong to study. But you can be wowed by God's love and think you deserve it. You need to understand who you are before a holy God. 
You need to understand I need a clean heart. If I'm going to be in his presence, I need a renewed spirit within me. I need to understand that he can cast me into darkness and doesn't owe me a thing. Then and only then can I truly understand what he's done for me in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can have joy of my salvation. Then he ends here and sustain me with a willing spirit. Interesting. After all that, David goes one step further and says, and my ability to hang on to all of this is still of you, God. It's not us holding on to God with this white knuckle grip. He's holding on to us. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Give me a spirit, God, that is totally given over to you. The beauty here is that our God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as David would have cried out, as Yahweh, the triune God, he's always willing to help those and sustain those who have a repentant spirit that are seeking purity. We, again, I, I, I keep hammering home, we live on, the, on this side of the cross. Jesus said, as it is finished, our pardon is fully paid for. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the pursuit of purity, we better be crying out for it. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who has a work within you. There's a beautiful dynamic here. We cry out, we avail ourselves to the means of grace that God has given us to grow in holiness. And when we do, he will sustain us with a willing spirit. He will give us a clean heart. He will renew a steadfast spirit within us. He will bring it about, but we must cry out and submit to him in all of it. I'm just gripped by that. That restored to me the joy of your salvation. So let's even ask ourselves tonight, take a, do you have joy of your salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight? Do you, can, do you have a joy? Not simply a, a head knowledge of it, that it's true. A true joy. Could you be really willing to give over your, if you had to, something happens, whatever. Are you willing to joyfully die tonight? If God says it's time, would you have joy that you are going to be ushered into his presence? Or would there be fear because of what you're leaving behind or because of what you're moving towards we should have joy of our salvation because we are going to have infinite joy in god for who he is i don't have the joy i wish i had i want greater joy in the salvation that god has provided in himself for me through christ It's so easy to to get caught up in spiritual disciplines that don't produce any devotion. Your life becomes nothing more than spiritual boxes to check. And because we like checking boxes and we think it gives us a, a sense that we're accomplishing things and moving forward, it gives us a false sense of security. We have joy over our performance, not joy in our salvation. So as we close tonight, I just want to once more 
ask you, have you been that broken by your sin that you recognize that God would be fully within his rights to cast you into darkness and turn his, take his presence from you? Have you ever been that broken? If not, pray that dangerous prayer that God would utterly devastate you with that reality. And then cry out to God for a true, clean heart, a heart that is pure and unmixed. Ask him to strengthen your spirit that you can pursue these things. And ask him to give you that joy that is found in him and in what he's done for you, but ultimately for his own glory. And that he's done it through the Lord Jesus Christ. And know that in Christ, you stand secure in the midst of all of this. With that, let's pray. Father God, we come before you this evening. And as we continue to not simply rake the leaves of this psalm, but dig deep for the gold and the truth that is in it, you've shown us, Lord, today the reality that we need clean hearts. Father, we need to do business with you. We all do. What David did was horrible, but the reality is Jesus said that, for example, in David's situation, that to look on a woman lustfully is to commit adultery, to hate is to murder. And so even just at the heart level in our thoughts, we're equal to David and at times possibly make him look like a choir boy. And so Psalm 51 is a psalm for us, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray now for myself and on behalf of those here joining us this evening, creating us a clean heart, oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within us. Do not take your Holy, do not cast us out of your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and sustain us with a willing spirit, Lord. And we know that your promises are yes and amen for those who are in Christ and that you will accomplish this thing and that you are accomplishing. We thank you that in Christ, by faith, we already have a new heart and that you promise to continuously clean it. That if we confess our sins, that you, God, are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all that unrighteousness. That there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And that nothing can separate us from your love in and through Christ. So no more masks, Lord. We don't need them. We're wasting time. Let us be honest before you, Lord. Give us a spirit of honesty. Holy Spirit, convict us that we'd be honest and, and confess these things and ask for the cleaning that we need, the cleansing that we so desperately need. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you bring about this cleansing, that you lead us into all truth, that you convict us of sin, and that you are shaping us into the image of Christ for that great and glorious day that we will walk into his kingdom and behold his beauty unveiled. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you worked in David so long ago and that he put pen to paper and left us the psalm that was inspired by you. And we long for the day, Lord, that all of us will be with you and we won't have to cry out for a clean heart anymore because we'll be glorified in your presence, enjoying you, free from sin. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.